Support for Melbourne Food & Wine comes from Australian Good Meat. Australian Good Meat is your go-to for all you need to know about sustainability and welfare in the red meat industry. Find out more about where your meat comes from at goodmeat.com.au. Water, power, gas, people, waste, the land, the air, the rivers, the sea. Between looking out for the environment, the community, their staff and their own well-being, do chefs and restaurateurs still have the time and the energy to cook? Can we do it all? Where should our priorities lie in 2019? I'm Pat Nurse and this is Melbourne Food & Wine. We put together an all-star panel earlier this year for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, presented by the Bank of Melbourne, to discuss these very questions. Speaking at the Theatre of Ideas with Sam Sifton from our partners at the New York Times were goat producer James Wetlaw from Cabrito Goat Meat, author and journalist Jill Duplay, and Lakehouse chef and restaurateur Alla Wolf-Tasker, getting together to tackle a burning issue of our time. Is sustainability sustainable? Sam opens the session with a question to Jill. How do you define sustainability in the context of food? It's not buggering up the planet. And I think it's very true that everyone would have different priorities, and I'm sure the three of us will too. When we were researching the book Truth, Love and Clean Cutlery, which is the world's first guide to ethical and sustainable restaurants, That was proven time and again. For some chefs and restaurateurs, it was all about the environment. For others, it was all about minimising waste. For others, it was actually about creating a fantastic culture in the kitchen and having gender diversity and running the place like a family. And every single person brought who they were to their way of solving the problem, which I thought was that... It's all those little bits, you know, that add up. Add up. Yeah. James, how do you see it? Maintaining and increasing outputs without increasing carbon inputs. Yeah, the I mean, practical that's, approach. That's pretty much what it comes down to, I think. And that is with a lot of the farming that we're involved with, I think that's central to what they do. Uh, how about you? Sustainability, the definition is maintaining the status quo and making sure things don't go backwards, really, basically. But, I mean, for me, sustainability over the last 35 years at Lakehouse certainly has been all kinds of sustainability. So there's sustainability of our local community in a tiny Victorian hamlet that looked like it had absolutely no prospects whatsoever when we started. The sustainability of our food system, our global food system, that encourages unhealthy eating, which means that we build a whole lot more hospital. And it also demotes the standing of the people who grow our food. There's no respect for farmers in our particular community. That's changing, mind you. The sustainability of our industry, hospitality, the sustainability of our business, Lake House, the sustainability of myself as someone who, <laughs> who remains at the helm of what's now a rather large undertaking and that's not the only undertaking. I put my hand up for a whole lot of projects. So when I get people asking me about what I'm doing about plastics and water consumption and our carbon footprint, I get a bit cross because I see all of those issues as symptoms of much bigger problems. And it's the big problems that I worry about with sustainability. So I'm going to jump in there for a minute because that's an excellent point. One of the through lines of having this discussion about what is sustainability in terms of restaurants is often the response is, well, it's sustainability. And we know that doesn't really work. So I'll turn to you to ask, 
there are pitfalls to this. What is a specific response to this desire for sustainability and all that Al uh, describes that we can do besides increasing output while reducing a carbon footprint? Well, there are very many specific things uh, that you can do to reduce your energy consumption, obviously. Um, it's all the things we do at home. It's common sense. It's turning the lights off. It's getting better globes. It's not running the water when you don't need it or investing in a water program. And, uh, and I like Ella's point about being sustainable yourself as well because it's a little bit like... Parents put the oxygen mask on first because otherwise you won't be able to help your children. Unless you are healthy, fit and sustainable, your business won't be. And unless your business is healthy, fit and sustainable, it won't be able to contribute to the wider community. You're only sort of... You might think you're doing the right thing, but you're probably just running yourself into the ground and punishing yourself with all the, the guilt that comes with flying around the world talking on panels about sustainability. <laughs> yeah, I'm the asterisk. I'm allowed to fly around. James, one of the things that's interesting about the protein source that you champion is that it actually is one of the, it's one of the few kind of bright spots on a changing planet because goat require a sort of different ecosystem than the more traditionally farmed, at least for our palates, that is to say the white guy palate of beef and lamb. Is that right? Or Yeah, I mean in the there's a farming system in the in Australia that, that ranches goats and it's much less impact because they are much they don't require grain feeding for a start and they can forage and their water intake is much less. But what we do in Europe is we take a waste product and send it into a food product. Right. So there's uh, 100,000 milking nannies in the UK. We all understand pretty basic biology. In order to achieve lactation, you require pregnancy. Pregnancy has a very definite outcome, and nature determines that 50% of the animals born will be males. There aren't any use for males in a dairy system. So before we came along, in an overwhelming majority of cases, they were euthanized because in order to keep 2,000 milking females, you probably only need 12 male goats in order mm -hmm. to keep that going. So... That means in the UK, because you don't keep all the females to replenish the herd, there's anywhere between 70 and 80,000 goats being euthanized at a few hours old. And that's from 100,000 milking nannies in the UK. There's 350,000 milking nannies in the Netherlands, and there's a million in France. So between those three countries, we are euthanizing animals at a few hours old in the numbers, probably about 1.5 million. And that is the sort of thing that is... I mean, I've been talking about this stuff every day for six years, and I still say those statistics, and it blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. That we allowed, as a society, a industry to grow and develop predicated on the idea of euthanizing 50% of all the animals born into that industry every year. In any other system, that mortality rate would shut that system down. Right. But we allow it because that's how it is. So... Cabrito started wanting to change that and we now have pilot projects in France and in Germany and in the Netherlands and obviously a, a business that's sustainable in terms of its business rather than its environmental side in the UK. And I think, I'm quite optimistic about this stuff because I think that the thing that sells our product, I mean, goat is delicious and it's brilliant and it's really diverse, but the thing that sells our product is the ethical story behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is now very difficult to start a business without assessing and having as part of your story the impact that it has on the planet. Like, I was just sitting in here for the last talk, and they were talking about 
coffee cups. Yep. They were talking about coffee, and the last 10 minutes was devoted to what are you going to do about the problem of waste? So all of these industries are facing these problems, and that tanker is turning because there is a generation of people that want that change. Consumers that want to know that they're buying stuff and not feel guilty about it. So, Ala, I want to jump to you because uh, you run a restaurant, and mm. you run a very beautiful restaurant with a rich history of caring for your guests well. And I wonder, given that Jill's absolutely right, that the way we turn to sustainability is do things as we do at home and don't waste water and keep the lights off. And how does that square with running a luxury business? How does sustainability square with starched white tablecloths? Well, in terms of sourcing, it's really obvious. I mean, the model you're talking about is the model that we choose if it's available. I mean, in terms of goat meat in Australia, certainly in Victoria, just to explain what's happening here, we've used goat meat on occasion, but it hasn't been developed to the point you've got it, where it's really consistent quality. And we are going to need consistent quality. But, for example, in the rose veal industry, which is using bobby vealers, there has been some consistency in the approach with that, so that's what we can buy into. Yeah, and that demand will drive the change. Yes, because, right. Because yes. in the end... In the end, the reason that we have had the success that we've had is the farmers have seen a profit motive at the end of it. Oh, we can actually rear these billies and sell them. In that case, I will. Because I don't make, I don't make any money out of shooting them, but I do make money out of... I mean, we put 20% on the turnover of the farms, which is an economic advantage they have over the farms that don't do what they do. So there's a couple of things that have kind of come out of what you've said, I think. First of all, if you want change to happen and be sustainable, I think it has to be profitable. That isn't a contradiction, and that isn't a bad thing. And the other thing that I don't think existing and like we were saying about flying around the world talking about sustainability, I don't think existing in the world and, and engaging in the things that world has to offer, but still thinking that there's some of those things to change and try and make that change is not a contradiction. I'm going to turn to Jill just for a second because I want her to see if I can get that question answered about the kind of luxury versus. Like how do we square our desire for pleasure with our responsibility to the planet. I say that not as... Um, I don't think we have to. Excellent. Well, let's discuss that. I think we do, but it's about well, re redefining conflict. our understanding of what luxury is. Yeah. Because my idea of luxury is not starched white cloths that require all that laundering. It's actually the care of the people coming to the table, the people who've chosen to work with small-scale farmers around them and support their local community. People who are trying to find alternative sources of protein, for instance, and investing in that, that to me you end up with a product that is a luxury, something that has been treasured and cared for, whether it's a flower or a leaf, an aroma from some chef who just loves growing his or her own vegetables, that is a luxury. So is uh, bottled water. That's a problem for us, yes? Yeah, so you have somebody like Dan Hunter of Bray down in the Otways. I mean, not every chef and restaurant can have 30 hectares of orchards and, and their own dams and things, but regardless... Most have taps. Yeah, that's right. And he had, the he had the roof. two. <laughs> but he, he set up at great expense his own 
tanks and his own water system. And he said the cost saving was enormous. The space storage saving was enormous. Uh, the shipping, the energy required to bring all that bottled water in, to store it, to refrigerate it, to handle it, to store it again, and then to pay for removal. So he's, you know, it's, it's interesting. He's turned that corner. He has, and he's done it probably very pragmatically um, for the right reasons and for economic reasons, which goes back to his restaurant being sustainable. But what you're talking about there is innovation. Yeah. You know, and I think that one of the things that the catering and the restaurant industry can do is innovate in this sector. It can say, and I see it all the time now. I mean, I'm from the generation that's sort of the first generation that was that grew up sort of post St John, post River Cottage, post River Cafe, where there was this British food renaissance. And now I've got to the age where I'm too old to work in a kitchen because my feet hurt and my back hurt and my partner's <laughs> got two kids and you can't work six nights yeah, a week. It's unsustainable. Week. And yeah, and you get tipped out into the world of work for a second time with a post-chef career. But you take all the things that, I mean, that's why I'm a good example of this. I've taken the lessons that I learned in cooking about sustainability and farming and low impact stuff that drove the uh, philosophy of the kitchens that I worked in and now I've taken that into my second work life and I think that is happening on a large scale especially in the UK chefs that will then go and work as uh, well, one of my friends has ended up as head development chef for Tesco mm-hmm. and he is re-engineering all the products saying you can't have that you can't have battery chicken in the cheaper ready meals it needs to be free-range chicken and those kind of things Obviously, there are price pressures on that, and you have to make compromises, but that is turning the tanker. And I, th- and I think that that's where innovation in the catering industry eventually drives larger change, the and then government picks up. Yeah. So I think your example of bottled water, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was banned in 10 years. But yeah. first of all, there'll be innovation to show how you replace that, because obviously people want it. Ala, when did you start seeing the tanker turn, to use James's phrase? Because if there is, you know, you mentioned the River Cafe in in the UK, Lake House falls into the same category here uh, in Australia. When did you start seeing this turn toward an understanding of uh, food's impact on the environment and how you had to change your business in order to embrace that? My own understanding. You've always been doing it. I was going to say my own understanding has grown, even though when I started, I mean, I wanted local food when I started, but it Mm -hmm. was because I was trained in Europe in regional restaurants and saw that happening and I wanted it and I didn't realise the benefits of it. I just wanted it. I wanted all those little suppliers around me. And it's not until fairly recently that the pennies dropped about the benefits of having a local food community. I mean, the money stays in the region, you eat locally, the whole thing's much more sustainable and the people who grow the food actually get the money, not the people who transport the food or use it as a commodity. So, you know, and there's a whole myriad of other reasons. So I've always wanted it, now I kind of get it and I understand why it works as a model. I just have to say, though, (laughs) there's a whole lot of things that have been said that I don't quite agree with. Um, The fact is, we're not all there yet. There's an enormous confusion amongst the the consumer because of the greenwashing that's going on. Everything's being called natural, healthy, 
you know, picture of a farmer with a pitchfork on everything and it's actually a commodity grown something or other. And you, if you have a look, you know, what Michael Pollan calls the most treacherous aisle in the supermarket, which is the cereals, which used to have Tigger on it and Cocoa Pop monkeys and things, now it's appealing a lot more to kind of the middle-class mum who is worried about what they're feeding their kids and all of a sudden it has all of this wonderful natural farmer with pitchfork kind of branding And, of course, it is the same commodity, often GMO crops that have been, you know, put together to make a new muesli with a tonne of sugar because all the fat's reduced. But that means the message is working. That's healthy. That means the message is working because they've had to change how they've done it before. I agree. They have, but it's still rubbish. It's still rubbish. It's been greenwashed. 100%. So I do want to say, if I could just finish. So my concern is, and I think we need to understand this, that the sleight of hand that is moving into our food system is something that we all need to understand. Here we are talking about isn't it great we're all good we're using goat meat and grass-fed beef what is happening in the world is an increasing slip towards fake food that's where we're going that's the real so, place we're going we're not going to this so wonderful, I, I, wonderful nirvana of grass-fed no this it is, is great pessimism in. has arrived it on is, stage it is slipping in and it will be there before you know it and if you have a look there's now articles online that you can read about what goes into that burger that is not made from meat because meat is now terrible for the planet and we all understand that and it's actually not that simple. But if you read what goes into that burger, be very afraid and it's slipping under the vegan thing. So, so uh, let me interrupt one you of the for biggest a second growing things in the world. I th- Sorry. I, I think, wow. <laughs> Joanna Bridman's written a lot about that. Um, just... Go ahead, James. Joanna Blytheman's written a lot about that, about how the the sales of processed food are falling because people have realised that it's actually really bad for you, but one of the ways in which processed food can come back into fashion is through the vegan movement because it requires an awful lot of treatment in order to look and behave like meat proteins. But just to be clear... Are you raising a pessimistic flag today I'm or saying, an ultimately optimistic No, I'm one? actually saying that the big thing that has to change, really, if you really want change, is that we have to start valuing food, and we don't. At the moment, it is more important for every family in Australia to have one and a half television sets, smart Apple sets, and, <laughs> and a zillion kind of other gadgets than it is we expend less money on food than most of the developed world. In our culture, we keep saying, aren't we good, we're foodies. We don't actually spend very much on our food and the percentage of our salary that we spend on food is actually not something to be proud of. And what we tend to do, it's not entirely our fault, I'm not blaming anyone, but we have followed the US model, which is supersize me. Give me lots of cheap food, let it be available all year round, I don't care about the seasons, and make it convenient. So that's, that is that's the, our model. That's that, our model. So that is the, the pessimistic flag. No, the pessimistic... <laughs> fine. Not that's quite. Fine. Not quite. Jill, do you, where do you stand between our two uh, panellists? Definitely, definitely uh, I'm the glass is overflowing type of person. <laughs> so I choose not to get overwhelmed and depressed by all the terrible stories out there. I choose to get inspired and seek out the good stories, the good people, and sort of just keep adding to my bank of knowledge. I think it's incredibly important that we are an educated food consumer. And the best way of doing that is to just grow a few things yourself and cook. I think if you really do cook 
for your, your own food and look after your own family, that extends. Your own knowledge bank is enormous and you're making the right choices all the time. I think there are obviously some structural things Issues, here. Yes. And there aren't a lot of problems to which education isn't the solution. And for kids to leave school without being able to cook is, uh-huh. I think, criminal. Do we all so agree on that? I Absolutely. Think, you know, and, Absolutely. If, and if we learn how to... I think Going back to Michael Pollan, he said that he used to hate peeling and chopping onions and garlic until he realised that everything he ate started with peeling onions and garlic. Yes. Yes. So yeah. you should really enjoy that. And yes. if you put fresh onions and fresh garlic in front of kids, learn how to chop these and cook these in butter, now you can cook pretty much everything. Well, you know? Pollan also said something very interesting, which was if you want to be like a true American and only want to eat fried chicken and cheeseburgers and apple pie, you can certainly do that. You just have to make it yourself every time, which will, of course, cut that down. So I'm looking up at the clock. I know we want to get some questions from the audience, but I think it's pretty fascinating that we, you know, we have a pragmatist, a wildly optimistic person, a somewhat pessimistic person, (laughs) but everyone with a heart of gold. Um, So who has a question? It's really good that we're talking about restaurants and cafes and everything that sells commercially. But on a small scale, I'd like to know two specific things that people can do. And I know that you said we can cook what we grow. But just this morning, I was reading about the millennials that are driving purchases. And I think it was some crazy statistic, like 50% of them will choose pre-packaged cut vegetables every time. And that's not really something that we can change over convenience. James? I was at Victoria Market this morning. Enjoy the experience of shopping. Like, go to these markets that have these beautiful produce and don't be afraid of it. That's the other thing. And that, I think, is part of when you're cooking. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. Don't be afraid of making a recipe if you don't have everything. Like, if it's got five ingredients and you've not got one of them, you know, improvise. Have four. And yeah. if you go to these markets and you see these specialist producers, they are as invested in that as, I mean, I am the same with Gomi. I could talk about it all day. Talk to them about their product. Ask them. They will happily talk to you all day and you'll get to know these people. And that, that Victoria Market feels like it has a little community up there, which is a great thing to be involved in. Make it part of your routine. Alan, do you have one? Shop at a farmer's market. If we could get all the millennials that you're talking about who are buying things in plastic bags already chopped up to actually shop at a farmer's market where you actually can eyeball the producer, the grower, and talk to him or her about what they've done to the food. Know about the food. Know what's been done to the food before you get it. Use that as a guiding principle. And the little guy who's stocking the shelves in the supermarket won't be able to tell you. What are your favourite sustainable foods at Lake House? Oh, my goodness, my favourite. That's not a Dorothy Dixer, by the way. I didn't pre-organise that. <laughs> goodness. Well, we have a 38-acre farm, and which is producing almost all of our vegetables now. Oh, God, it's been a tough gig, let me tell you. But it is. Um, but I think our eggs are brilliant. They're called honest eggs, actually. They come from Paul Rigetti's farm, and he farms his great-grandfather's farm. We get wonderful pigs from Brooklands Free Range farm nearby, also get their beef. I know the farmer, I know the whole family, we know the pigs, <laughs> we know the, the cattle. For um, a short time. Well, they only have one bad day. That's <laughs> yeah, the most that's important right. thing. You know, a good life and only one bad day, that's better than most of us have. So, you know, it's pretty good. It's, it's true. I know we don't actually have time for one more question, but I'm throwing the rules away and we have time for one more because 
We're in the New York Times. Oh, one more answer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, we cut you off, but she's so cute, we had to. Yes, ma'am. I wanted to ask what Jill's answer was. <laughs> oh, well Brilliant. done. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well done. Brilliant. Well done. That's beautiful. Thank you very I wanted much. to say, and really it's in answer to you again, is that we have to show leadership as well. We can't just rely on our chefs and restaurateurs to do that for us. I think the um, replacing plastic straws with um, all sorts of more sustainable alternatives was a really good case study on that. I have never seen an environmental initiative move so fast, driven by the consumer, picked up very... It's a fixable problem and it happened within six months. All the surveys that came back in for Truth, Love and Clean Cutlery and we've just given up, you know, single-use plastic straws. By the end of the editing process, I wasn't even mentioning it because it was like, oh, that's going to date this book to 2018. Mm. Um, <laughs> Ella talked about the egg being like one of the best things that she produces as part of her beautiful um, lake house. I totally agree with that. If we do that at home with one egg, you might think, again, that's too small to make a difference. There's an organisation in the UK called the Sustainable Restaurant Association, SRA, and they have about 7,500 restaurants signed up from Raymond Blanc's Le Manoir Cart Saison to high street chains. And I thought, oh, come on, high street chains, greenwashing. However, when one of those high street chains, a hamburger chain, changed from battery farm eggs to free-range eggs, that had an impact across the entire country and across the entire industry that was driven by us and so enormous impact and so act as if you think what you're doing will make a difference. You've been listening to a recording from the Theatre of Ideas made in March 2019 at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. James Wetlaw's appearance at Melbourne Food and Wine this year was made possible by Meat and Livestock Australia. Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, meanwhile, is made possible with the support of Visit Victoria. I'm Pat Nurse. Thank you for listening. <laughs>